Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. So, this is Israel's greatest, greatest king, and he's saying this. So, so what does man do to cope with this? Well, he separates him farther and farther away from God. He separates himself farther and farther away from God. It just doesn't bother him anymore. And this was the experience of the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.17. In Revelation 3.17, the Lord steps into their lives, their very comfortable lives without God, and he says to them, Revelation 3.17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not, that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. White raiment that thou mayest be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. So they look at themselves in their life away from God. They look at themselves and they say, not bad, not bad at all. He says, I'm rich, I've got a lot of wealth, I don't need anything, I don't need God, who needs God? And all the while, the Lord looks at them and has a totally different view of them, totally opposite impression of them. He looks at them and he says, you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. Apart from that, you're very good. How could there be such a disconnect? How could there be such a disconnect between what man thinks of himself and what God thinks of man. Well, God has a solution for this, thank God. And his solution, he says, he said, look, come to me so that you can be clothed because this is not good. The shame of your nakedness is not good so that the shame of your nakedness doesn't appear. So come to me because what is born of Adam is sinful. And that's why the mother of the Lord Jesus is explained in verse 18 that she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. This is what the angel told Joseph, that Mary was going to have a special child. This was just like God told Abraham that Sarah was going to have a special child in Genesis 17, 19. Genesis 17, 19, when it says, And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. So then Joseph was told to name the child Jesus. And that was the name of Jesus. It wasn't so monumental. There were others named Jesus. Okay, and Joseph says, okay, I can do that. I, I can name the child Jesus, whatever. But it was the reason why he was to name the child Jesus that was so astounding. Just think of, if you were Joseph and you heard these words, well, you call him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. Oh, right away, you know, you're Joseph and you've got a lot of questions. Save? What do you mean save? His people? Who is that? 
Who are his people? And how is he going to save his people from their sins? So we read this, and we're so used to reading this in the King James, and of course, you know, I love the King James, but not that much, but I do love it. But the revised version actually is closer to the Greek than the King James here. And I want to read to you how the revised version puts this verse in, in verse 21, Matthew 121. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And here's the difference. For it is he that shall save his people from their sins. And that's what the Greek is saying. It is he that shall save his people from their sins. See, it's that part that's emphasized here that it is he. It puts a whole different slant on what the angel's statement was to Joseph. It is he, in verse 21, that brings out that this one was the long-expected one ever since the promise was made in verse 21. It is he that will come. Finally, it is he that is coming. This is the one who, from all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when the promise was made to Eve in Genesis 3.15, that God was going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and then he said, it shall bruise thy head. Thou, the serpent, is going to bruise his heel. And so now the angel is telling Joseph in verse 21, it is he that was spoken about to Eve. And this long-anticipated one, as we said, was prophesied, was told, was coming to Abraham in that verse in Genesis 12.3. We already talked about Genesis 12.3, where it says, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So the angel is telling Joseph in verse 21, it is he that will come. And the one that's described as Shiloh and promised to the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49.10, Genesis 49.10, Jacob on his deathbed is beginning the prophecy about Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So Joseph's being told in verse 21, the gatherer of the people, it is he that will come. He's described by this pagan, whatever you want to call him, Balaam, Moabite Balaam, about the tribe of Jacob when he says in Numbers 24, 17, Numbers 24, 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. So what the angel is telling Joseph, going back to that in verse 21, it is he that will come that will destroy the enemies of Israel. And of course, the Isaiah, the great Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah 9, 6, that the child is going to be born, the son is going to be given, and the government's going to be on his shoulder, and his name's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, and the Mighty God, and the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So the angel is saying to Joseph in verse 21, it's he that will come. It's he that will come. David, in 2 Samuel seven sixteen got the promise from God, thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever through the son of David. It's he that will come. It's he that's coming. That's what he was told. Joseph was told by the angel. So it's all this emphasis in verse 21 on it. It's he, it's he, it's he that will come. And that's behind, and that's why his name is Jesus. It's he that's going to come, that's going to deliver but it's an emphasis on him. It's the same emphasis that we see in Colossians 1.16. Colossians 1.16 were these words of by him and for him. It says in Colossians 1.16, by him 
were all things created that are in heaven and are in earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. First place, he might have the Ichiban. So it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell. By him, for him, in him. All thing, all the creation was made by him. Everything is held together by him. All the creation was made for him. All the fullness of God is in him. And that's why Colossians 2.10 says, Colossians 2.10 says, you are complete in him. So the angel is telling Joseph that this is the one. And now he says he's going to save his people from their sins. And that raises the question, who is that? Who are his people? He's going to save from his sins. Well, we have this identification of who his people are in John 1.11. In John 1.11, when it says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, that's pretty clear. I mean, we know exactly who that is. It's the Jewish people. They didn't refer to him. So the large group, the larger group, the majority of the Jewish people are referred to as his own that did not receive him. But right after that verse, there's another group, a subgroup, a group within a group. And it talks about this in John 1.12, John 1.12. But as many as did receive him, to them gave he the power or the authority to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name. So this is the as many as received him group. And the question is, is this group that received him, that is referred to, are they only Jews? And the answer to that question goes back to the promise that was made to Abraham, who explained that he was going to be the blessing to all families of the earth. When the angels announced to the shepherds that he's been born in Bethlehem, What they say in Luke 2.10, what the angel said in Luke 10, was fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. All people. Not just the Jewish people, all people. John the Baptist, the great herald of him, the one who announces him, the forerunner, the Elijah, speaking to the Jewish people, when he sees them, he says in John 1.29, John 1.29, he says, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The whole wide world. And then the Apostle John is writing about the sins that the Lord Jesus covered or died for or paid for. And he says in 1 John 2.2, 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation, he's the covering for our sins, not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. And then he goes on in 1 John 4.14, 1 John 4.14, and he says, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, of the world. Not just of the Jews, but of the world. And it was to a Gentile Roman centurion, of all people, who displayed such faith in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Lord couldn't help but make a comparison between believing Gentiles and the majority of the Jewish people. And he said these astounding words in Matthew 8.10. Matthew 8.10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, 
Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and from the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he said, many are going to come from the east. Many are going to come from the west. That means Gentiles. And they're going to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That means Jews. And they're not going to be treated as second-class citizens with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the catastrophic tragedy is this statement when he says in Matthew 8.12, Matthew 8.12, the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. Those words should not be. It should never be said. The children of the kingdom should be cast out. The children of the kingdom should be in the kingdom. But when the children of the kingdom reject the king, the tragedy happens. And that's the explanation. Now, if the angel would have said to Joseph in verse 21, the son was going to save his people and just finish it there, then Joseph would have thought like the, like the Jewish people thought, oh, that's good. We've got a real problem here with Rome. It's great to get someone to save us, to deliver us from the oppressive hand of Rome. But in other words, Joseph would have thought he's going to save his people. And if it's just anything from Rome, of course. I mean, after all, Rome was the immediate problem for the Jewish people. But Rome was the consequence of the problem. Rome was not the root problem. I mean, the Jewish people were conquered by Rome for the same reason that the Jewish people were conquered by Syria, by Babylon, by Persia, all because of sin. So the angel didn't say, he shall save his people. The angel didn't say, he shall save his people and not go on. And he didn't also say, he shall save his people from sin. Because if the angel would have said he shall save his people from sin, that would have opened the door for the people to have thought, oh, yeah, it's because of that other person's sin I was suffering, you know. <laughs> you, you remember I told you the story about went, went to the CEF booth. Scott and I went to the CEF booth. And one time was the sister, and she was sitting there in the front row, and the little brother, little guy was sitting next to him, and she was like this, you know. So I looked at her, and I said, have you ever told a lie, you know, with my evil eye? You ever told a lie? And she goes, he has. (laughs) He shall save his people from his sins. (laughs) Okay, so if the prodigal son, there would be no help for the prodigal son unless he said what he said, which was in Luke 15, 21, Luke 15, 21, where it says, and the son said unto the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. If the prodigal son had said, Father, you know I have a really terrible brother, your other son. He's self-righteous, and that's why I did what I did. If he had said that, no help for the prodigal son. No help. He had to own up to his own sin and say, I sinned. I have sinned. And same for the tax collector. The tax collector, there was help for the tax collector when he said in Luke 18, 13, Luke 18, 13, the publican, the tax collector, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if that tax collector had said, you know, God, you know, I live in a very bad environment. Everyone is stealing money, so I stole money. If he would have said that, no help. 
no help for him. He had to say the words, be merciful to me, a sinner. And there was help, as we were talking about, for King David in Psalm 51.4. In Psalm 51.4, when David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil. I did this evil in thy sight. And if David would have said something like, oh, Lord, you know, I was under a lot of stress with the wars here, the wars there, wars everywhere. And I had to manage all those wars. And the problem with the, the whole Bathsheba's affair, she left her window open. That was the problem. Uh, bathing herself with the window open. What's the matter with her? That's why I did what I, if he would have said that, no help. No help for David. He had to own up and say, I sinned. And those are the hardest words for anybody to say. I sinned. Because there's no help. Unless a person says, I sinned. There's no help if we sit there and say, he sinned. That's not going to work. So this is why it was so important in in Matthew 121, that word there. He shall save his people from their sins. When we look at the suffering, as we have been in Psalm 22, when we look at the sufferings and the death of the Lord, and you really get into it as we have been doing and as we do in Psalm 22, as it enables us to do, really get into the details of it all. It makes no sense. The sufferings and the death of the Lord makes no sense unless we individually get in line with the word we in Isaiah 64, 6. The word we in Isaiah 64, 6, which says, but we are all as an unclean thing. We're not just sinners. We're dirty, rotten sinners. The unclean thing, the unclean part. We are all as an unclean thing And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we do fade as the leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Unless we line up with we, then the death of the Lord doesn't make any sense. As it says in Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah 53, 6, all we, that's personal ownership, personal taking, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, that shows the very specific, the very personal sins when it says, we have turned everyone to his own way. If a person says to God, well, you know, if a person just says, well, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner, or I have sinned. And so when a person says to God, well, I'm a sinner, then you can almost hear God say, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, I'm a sinner, what do you mean? Well, I have sinned. What did you do? What did you do? See, that this is what God led Adam in Genesis 3.11. Genesis 3.11. He said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? It's so important. Be specific. In Ezra, Ezra 10.11, when he got all the people together who had the marriages they shouldn't have done with all the heathen people around. And he gets all the people together, and Ezra says to them, Ezra 10, 11, Ezra 10, 11, now therefore make confession unto the Lord, God of your fathers, and do his pleasure. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wife. So this is the tragedy of life. The tragedy of life is personal sin. That's the tragedy of life. The tragedy of life is the personal sin that is described in 2 Samuel 14, 14. 2 Samuel 14, 14 starts off very depressing in 2 Samuel 14, 14, when it says, for we must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground. 
So we're going from depression to depression, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person. So that's very, very depressing. We are going to die. We can't recover from it. And it's going to happen to each one of us, and there's no exemptions. But fortunately, the verse doesn't finish there because it says, Yet doth he, this is God, doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. The problem, first of all, he starts off, the problem with death is that described as we must needs die and there is water spilt on the ground which cannot be recovered. You know that, we talked about it, that's a cover, that's a picture of water being spilt on the ground. You can't get it back. You can't recover it again. This last week, two of my lost friends said to me, I don't know how many days I have to live. It was uncanny. Both of them said the same thing to me. I don't know how many days I have to live. Such a depressing statement. We must needs die. Endure as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Now, in fact, one of my friends said, every one of us is going to die. Big revelation. In 2 Samuel 14, 14, it says, neither doth God respect any person. So it's pretty depressing there. The death is final. It's a loss of life that can't be recovered again. And the second statement is that you can't get a pass. You know, neither doth God respect any persons. You can't say, you know, I'd rather just have lunch instead. No one's going to come to God and say, oh, God, not me, not me. I'm different. I'm special. I've done a lot of good things. I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. I don't want to lose my life. And if that was everything I had to say right now, that would lead to a pretty depressing day. But fortunately, the wonder of wonders is where God says, yet, in 2 Samuel 14, 14, yet doth he devise means. What is that? God has devised a means God has made a way. And this is the means that this hymn wonderfully speaks about when it says, love found a way. Love found a way. You could say, love found a means. You know, wonderful love that rescued me, sunk deep in sin, guilty and vile as I could be, no hope within. When every ray of light had fled, oh, glorious day, raising my soul from out the dead, love found a way. Love found a way to redeem my soul. Love found a way to make me whole. Love sent my Savior, my Lord, to the cross of shame. Love found a way, oh, praise his holy name. That's what is being spoken of in 2 Samuel 14, 14. It's love found a way. Yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. It's these means. What are the means? The means is the cross. The cross is the means. That was the way that God devised, the means that God devised to redeem man's soul. It was the cross that God devised to make man whole. What did the cross do as the means that he devised? That his banished be not expelled from him. That's quite a word, banished. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. 
You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. Israel Restoration Ministries is excited to announce a limited time offer for our Friendship with God Study Bible and Hymnal. This package includes a large printed genuine lambskin leather Bible featuring over 30,000 Bible column and inline scripture references, maps, timelines, and frequently asked questions. In addition, you'll also receive our Friendship with God hymnal. This hymnal, the first of its kind, contains over 1,000 hymns and melodies, making it the largest collection ever printed. Included with your purchase, you'll also receive a complimentary engraving of your name on either book. For more information, Visit us at friendshipwithgod.org or give us a call at 619-599-1104. That's 619-599-1104.